Welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast. My name is Ruben Williams, and with me, as always, is the Gen Y, Ryan Walker. How are you, my friend? I'm going fantastic, Rubes. It's great to have you behind the mic once again, steering the ship. How's uh, how's things on your end? Things are going fantastic. We are, I'm settling in back to lawn. A lot of things are starting to piece together in the background. It's an exciting time at a grad HQ. Mm. And um yeah, it's it's a positive time to um to be doing what we're doing. We're getting a lot of nice messages, a whole bunch of people getting jobs in sport. One of my favorites recently was uh one of our members, uh Saloni Pradhan, recently took up a role at our old joint or your current joint. I did Cricket say that. Australia. I did say that. So um she told me when she came to Australia from India. She came with one goal in mind, get a job at Cricket Australia. Her second goal was to meet Brett Lee. So, we've been able to help her achieve one of them at least. Wow. Well, I'm sure there'd be avenues to Brett, no doubt. Um, So, I'm sure those dreams are going to come true. Um, Before we go on, we better mention, you know, our beloved sponsor, Deakin University. uh, Great friend of the pod. A great friend of the pod who this episode Mm. is, is brought to you by. So, at Deakin University, every single course is backed by industry experts. So you can be confident you'll get the job you want with a degree employers want. And I, I love their tagline, Ryan. I do. And I'm about to say it. It's Deakin University, progressive real world learning. I love it also and I love saying it. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, let's get on to today. Uh, massive episode. Fantastic guest, uh, Christy Collier-Hill. General Manager of the of the Deakin Melbourne Boomers. Mm. How good is that? Well, we've got a, a clash of a not a clash, a a, a meeting of two Deakin um, sponsored products. It's a synergy, Rubes. Uh, it's, it's a perfect <laughs> synergy between Grad Deakin and the Boomers, and I think we've nailed it in this episode. Absolutely. So, anyway, uh, you are steering the ship, so continue. Yes. Well, I was just going to say one of the one of the great things to talk to Christy about was her process of becoming a CEO. Everyone sets out with dreams of being at the top of their game. That's usually a position as CEO. So, there's a few things you've got to prepare yourself for. And one of the things I loved hearing from Christy was how she prepared and executed her interview because there were a few different stages as we'll find out, Ryan, and a few different Mm. things that don't usually come across in a normal interview. So, to learn about a CEO's interview process was um, was fascinating and provided some good insights on what to be prepared for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I loved Christie's sort of her method to to being efficient with her stakeholder management and relationships. She mentioned, you know, one of the big differences between her other role and her CEO role is just managing those relationships. So hearing her go through that sounded like a bit of a step up to the you know the stakeholders that we'd talk to on a daily basis but yeah really good insight yeah well, i think she said she had what nine board members to have a relationship with and then there's subcommittees and there's direct reports indirect reports 30 sponsors as well so some of her methods are um incredibly useful um but finally the last thing to look forward to well there's many things to look forward to but one thing i absolutely loved was she's provided a guide, like an outline and script for the go-to email you should be sending somebody in your dream job. 
So we asked her, like, you know, if you're a student, what are you going to be doing to make sure that you're connecting with people in the industry? So her answer to the one person uh, that she would reach out to and exactly what she would say to them to create an opportunity was um, was enlightening. Um, and I think Absolutely. she might have done herself a disservice. She might get her inbox full of requests after yeah, this. but um, I'd be worried. Um, but it is, it is great insight. So grab a pen and enjoy this chat with Christy Collier-Hill. Christy, welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to be here. Christy, if you could go back and tell uh, your young, ambitious self one thing to be prepared for if you want to be a CEO, what do you think that would be? Oh, I mean, there's a lot of things to be prepared for once you're at that level, but I, I'd probably say the one thing to be prepared for is that once you reach that level, the job is your life. And I'm not to say that you don't have a life outside the job because, of course, you do, but it is your life and um, it's all-consuming. Um, and I remember somebody telling me a few years back in something I did that once you become a CEO, it's a 24-7 job. And I I was thinking, oh, you know, I work super fast and I'm super efficient and I get shit done and I'll be fine. And then it just is. It's, it is what it is. And so... I think uh, I think you've got to be prepared for the fact that it it does become it does become your life really. What does that look like practically? Because I can imagine there's a lot of people out there who might go out for dinner and drinks during the week, but like for you, there'd be a lot of sacrifices involved. You just simply can't do those things. So, what does it look like when your whole life is consumed by a job? I'm laughing because that just doesn't work for me. <laughs> I think, I think the, re- the reality of it is, look, we work, you know, when you're at this level, you're working your you standard work hours like everybody else because that's when everybody else is normally working. Um, but then to be very honest, you work most evenings, you work most weekends, and certainly when you work in sport, it's, you know, there's a lot of weekend work depending on when your season is and that sort of thing. And, look, the reality is that, um, when you're working with people that perhaps aren't in the business in the nine to five space, so your board members and your committee members, they want to, it's outside of work hours. So you've got board meetings, you've got committee meetings, you've got project group meetings that are predominantly in the evenings. Um, and look, when you're, you know, when you're kind of heading up an organization, when something happens, most of the time you're the person that that gets contacted, whether it just be uh, to to be aware of something that's happened or whether you you need to take action. And then look, depends who you work with. You know, I have a, a chair chair of my board who is fantastic to work with, but he works at all hours of the day and night. And so I'm getting text messages through at eleven o'clock at night, and you know, all sorts of things. So it is um. It is very challenging to have, uh, I'm going to say, a regular social life outside of that. Um, it is really still important to have time for the things that you have in your life. And I've got a, a couple of really young kids, four and three, um, and a husband. So I have to make time for them and they're kind of my priority. Um, so, yeah, squeezing in a bit of a social life is a challenge, but most of that is done in the off season. <laughs> well, that, that role sounds very tempting, but why do you do it then? <laughs> um, look, I think... I do it because I love it. I absolutely love my job. You know, I, I'm the GM of the Deacon Melbourne Boomers and 
we're a pro women's basketball team in the WNBL in Australia here, and that's pretty awesome. That's a pretty awesome job. You know, I remember going along to have a look at the first training session when I first started and watched that and just sitting there thinking, this is my job now. You know, I'm watching Ezzy Magbagor and Kayla George battle it out on the court for a couple of hours and Guy Malloy and, you know, these are legends of the game and and this is what I'm involved in now and, and that was pretty cool. Um, but look, on the flip side, I think for the boomers in particular, we're an organisation that stands for a lot more than and, and exists for a lot greater purpose than just being a pro women's basketball team. We run, you know, community camps and clinics. We run a, a community program um, and we really are very proactive in, in probably trying to bridge the gap in the inequalities that exist in female sports. So, I'm really passionate about that stuff. Um, I feel very fortunate to be part of an organisation that is also very passionate about that and, and not just passionate but proactive about it. So I think to do a job like this where it is all-consuming and I have my family tell me all the time, you know, what do you do it for? And, and I don't, hardly see them. Um, <laughs> but I do it because I love it and I do it because it's meaningful and I do it because it has purpose. And I think if you can find a job like that, even if it is all consuming, then it's pretty good. I think I, I saw a quote by Elon Musk that said, if what you're working on is more important than the parties you've been involved in, then welcome to the 1% club. And it sounds like that's the role you're kind of in now. Yeah, maybe. I feel like I do feel pretty lucky. I, I mean, like, I, I don't like to use the word lucky because I don't think luck exists. I think luck comes to people who work super hard to get there. Um, you know, I'm kind of in a role that I've probably always wanted to do. And um, so, yeah, maybe I do fit in that category. <laughs> well, let's, let's go right back for a second and just tell us a bit about your journey to becoming the general manager of the Boomers. Sure. I mean, I think like probably most of the people that listen to your podcast, I started out studying sports management back in the the 90s. I'll show my age now. Um, so, look, I think I probably naively so, and I think back now, but I did sports management just because I loved sport. I was a sports nut. Um, I played everything and anything. I, I play. I was part of the um, – I was played basketball at the elite level, so I was part of the Canberra Capitals program for a couple of years in the late 90s as well. And I just – I don't know. I just – I like sport. I watch it. I consume it. I'm part of it. And, and I just thought if I could have a job in sport, how amazing would that be? And then I, you know, throughout probably since then through to now, I've probably realised that you've you've probably got to narrow it down a bit more. And so, it's for me, it's kind of gone from narrowing it down to thinking, oh, I just love sport, sport's cool and I want to work in sport, to actually working in sport where it's a meaningful role and, and you can make a bit of an impact and have some difference, which is, you know, just what I shared with you guys before. But probably, so it started back there, um, I studied sports management, I then I've, I've really got a, a passion for learning as well. And I think it's really important to keep learning. So for me, um, I've continued to do to study through university, basically from from then when I started back in the 90s, right and through through to the last couple of years. So um, I did a postgrad certificate in marketing communications. And then I did a postgrad diploma in international sports management. And then a couple of years ago, I finished an MBA, a master's in business. So Education-wise, I wanted to do all of those. Um, in particular, to get the role that I've got now, I thought it was really important to do an MBA, um, not only for the learning, but like to be very honest, guys, when you're applying for jobs like this, if you don't have that, it's, you know, I, I almost, I'm, you're not going to get, you know, struck off the list, but um, it certainly helps. 
And so I think, you know, those kind of higher level CEO, GM roles, having that MBA is, you know, most people do these days. So it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of one of those things that I thought probably had to do, um, but it was still great and good learning. I think from a jobs perspective, getting your foot in the door is always the hardest part. Um, And I started... I suppose I started my career in sport really um, in the fitness industry. I worked with Les Mills Asia Pacific for a couple of years um, and then I was pretty lucky to move on to a role in golf with Golf New South Wales, the state body there for about seven years and um, a range of roles in, in both of those organisations. And then after that, I was really fortunate to move to Fitness Australia, which is the governing body for the fitness industry in the country and started kind of in a, a you know, like a marketing manager role and and moved my way up into a, a GM role and then into the chief operating officer role, which was the role I was in prior to, to coming into this role at the Melbourne Boomers. So I've kind of worked my way through and I would say, you know, the learnings I've had in that is the role in golf, which I was not a golfer and uh, wasn't particularly passionate about, but, I, you know, I did it for a period of time and it was a, it was still a great job and a great opportunity, but I kind of realized kind of coming towards the end of that, you know, it's not just about working in sport. It's actually about working in, in some way you want to work in. So yeah, so that's, that's a bit about my journey, I suppose. Lovely. You mentioned there that you need an MBA to get the kind of role that you're in now. How is the application process for a CEO role different to a regular role? Yeah, I mean, it's the the word that comes to mind is intensive because it's far more intensive. I mean, than any other role that that you'd apply for. Um, and I mean, I, I can only speak from my own experience, but the role I've got now was a four interview process. So started with wow. a, an interview, uh, I suppose, an informal interview with the recruiter, a formal interview with the recruiter, then coming down for an in, a four panel four person panel interview here in Melbourne and then the final stage was when I think they got it down to you know maybe two of us or maybe three of us pulling together a formal presentation and presenting that to the entire board and then basically being grilled on that (laughs) for the next hour after that presentation so it's not for the faint-hearted that's for sure Um, and it's really the first time I'd experienced any sort of level of application and interview process like that and look I was lucky that I got it so I you know obviously I did okay at it Um, it's just it's just really intense and I think you know I, I interview people for jobs all the time and and uh the level of research you need to do is is far more intensive it's not just going onto a website and and seeing what's going on you've got to reach out to people you've got to learn about people in the organization you've got to understand the depth of the organization and all the stakeholders and and i suppose touch points that it has and um so that was kind of a really really big part of it as well which is just just far more in depth i think than than kind of just an average role maybe And are there any parts in particular that would surprise people who aren't really aware of what's involved in it? Yeah, maybe just the two parts I shared there. So, you know, having to to do a formal presentation is pretty full on and then uh, just just the grilling. And, look, I say grilling, they're all pretty nice people, but, you know, you're asked some pretty tough questions 
it's not there's you know there's no airy fairiness to it you know yeah. there's no where do you want to be in five years and what's your strengths it, there's none of that it's really in-depth poignant questions about how are you going to improve our business what's your vision for our business how have you done that in in roles that you've had in the past you know what are your values and how do you how will you integrate them into our business um you know what's your strategy for success they're really really pointed questions about how you will be able to succeed in the role they want you to and ultimately how will you be able to run their business successfully because you know in sport these days everything's a business I work for a business um, and at the end of the day that business has to be financially sustainable to to continue and, and grow and so that's a really big part of it so you know from a sporting club or organization or team or state or national body um they need to make sure they're getting the right person so it is it is very intense um but look i i tend to think as well if you've done your homework um and you know what you stand for and you know what you can bring to the table you should be able to answer those questions pretty well and look the other thing i would share and and um, a couple of the board members have shared this with me since my interview is that they felt like I interviewed them. Um, and I, you know, it's uh, again, a lot more than just, do you have any questions for us? I, I asked them questions throughout the whole process because for me, I really wanted to make sure that it was something I wanted to do as well. Um, it was a big commitment for me. I actually moved down from Sydney with my family for the role. So I wanted to make sure I was coming into a place that had the right vision and, and had the right people and the right processes and, and, you know, was right for me and as well. And, and I know, I know that kind of can sound a bit cheesy because, you know, I know you hear people say that a lot, but it's important because if, you, if it's not right for you, then you're not going to do a good job for yourself or the business. Can you recall exactly what some of those uh, questions you got asked were and what some of those questions you asked in return were? Oh, you tested me now. <laughs> it's a few years ago. Um, look, one of the things I was asked to do and then really kind of drilled down on is the first three months and what what are the I think I had to I think I had to put forward ten things that I wanted to achieve in the first three months of the role and then 10 things that I wanted to achieve in the first 12 months of the role, so in the first year. And so I remember pulling those together and, you know, kind of doing that. But then the, the question was really, well, how are you going to do that? That all sounds great. So you're going to, you know, work on the culture and we're going to have this one team piece and you're going to, you know, push values. And and that was, and I thought, you know, this, this is great and this is actually what I'm going to do. But the, the questions were really around, well, how, how are you going to do that? tell me how you're going to integrate values into the front office team at the Boomers and tell me how, you know, you're going to, you're going to do that throughout the, the playing group and how are you going to connect? So I don't know if it was specific hard questions, but really drilling down to, I think, you know, more so to, to get the answers that they, they needed to understand a bit more about me and perhaps how I operate outside mm. of just that kind of high level stuff, you know? It's kind of like what what are you going to bring now? It's not so much around development, which is an interesting one. I think as well, there's probably some things that are consistent with any interview um, that kind of, you know, make sense. If you can nail them and you, and you should be pretty confident in speaking to anybody about them. So, yeah. 
Absolutely. And look, one of the tricks I have is that if I ask them questions and get them talking more, it's me talking less. Um, And I always find- More time to think on the fly. More time to think, but also more time to listen and learn. I learned, I can't can't actually remember what I asked them, but I I remember at the time thinking that the information that I was absorbing through them talking to me and them talking to me about the business and what, you know, what they wanted to do, it helped then frame what I was sharing with them about how I could integrate myself into the business. So, it's a it's a good thing to be able to do if you if you uh, you know know the right questions to ask and uh, and will genuinely listen and then use that information. So listening and asking effective questions seem to be a skill you draw upon a lot. What what other skills do you use to be an effective CEO? Oh, there's a million of them. Um, I think the the biggest for me probably jumping from my last role to this role up into this space the. I suppose the newest, not the newest, the skill that has become probably most prominent for me in this role, and and it's not even a skill, I suppose it is, but um, is really around stakeholder relationships and stakeholder management. And, And what I mean by that is that once you're in a role like this, the level of stakeholders, people that you have to engage with, work with, build relationships with is just phenomenal. So, for me, for example, I have a board of nine people who I all have to have relationships with. We have three subcommittees, all have about four or five people on them. And that's kind of it, you know, kind of the top end. I've then got front office staff. I've got direct reports and indirect reports. We've got a number of contractors that work for us. Then we've got the team. So, we've got coaching staff and high performance staff and players. And then we've got our external stakeholders. So, we've got to work with Basketball Australia, with the WNBL, with Basketball Victoria, with local and state governments. So, all of that, all of those people um, I have to work with. I have to form relationships with. I have to, you know, perhaps work with on a project basis. Um, I need to engage with. I need to communicate with. So, the biggest, that's probably been the biggest learning curve for me, which is realizing that the volume of stakeholders once you're up at this level is just so high. And it's the same, you know, I think no matter what kind of sport or team you're involved in, there's, it's just, there's just a high level of a high volume of stakeholders. So I've had to kind of learn um, a few things to help me with that. So one is the, the one to many strategy, which is a, you know, a pretty obvious one, but a good example of that is we have a lot of sponsors at the Boomers. We have a great sponsor network, but again, we've, you know, we've got 30 odd sponsors. Even if I visited one of those a week, that's a whole year gone. And then I've got, you know, there's all the other stakeholders. So we've introduced a couple of sponsor workshops that we do throughout the year and bring them all in together, gives us an opportunity to engage, share some information, have some conversations. So, we've done that in a couple of areas and and that's kind of helped a bit. And I suppose the other thing that kind of, for me, that probably flows on a bit from that is really learning about when it comes to work at this level, um, it's probably broken down into two components. And I kind of think about it as conversations and composition. So, what I mean by that is conversations for me is talking to people. So, it's talking on the phone. I could talk on the phone all day, um, like just returning calls and, and making calls to people that I need to make. I could be in meetings all day. 
that's work. <laughs> um, for me, it doesn't feel like it sometimes, but it is work. So that's your kind of conversation part. And then there's your composition part. So that's the part where you actually need to sit down and work through a project or create some comms or write some emails or, you know, do some planning and strategizing. So the high level of stakeholder management means that that conversation part is so much greater at this level. I think when you're kind of, you know, in the G, in that GM marketing role, which I was in before or or a marketing manager, there's a lot more of your composition. You're doing a lot more of the work. And it's not to say I don't do work. You've still got got the same volume of work to do, but you've got so much more else that happens over here on that conversation side. So it's probably... It's probably the biggest challenge that I find and I don't have all the answers and I am definitely not perfect at it. I don't even think I'm that good at it, but I'm getting better as time goes on. I love what you said about the the one-to-many approach because I think no matter what role you're in or what situation you're in, that's something that can be adopted to make you more effective at, at what you're doing. And for the benefit of our listeners who are people trying to network into jobs and find their first role in sport, you know, rather than going out and having individual coffees with all these different people at once and trying to catch up with those different people all the time throughout the entire year, perhaps... Posting on LinkedIn as a different way to stay top of mind is one way we can put in one bit of effort and still get the same sort of result where people remember you more. So I think that one-to-many, no matter what you're doing, uh, is a good approach to to adopt. Yeah, your listeners can't see me, but I'm nodding. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Chrissy, I was wondering, you mentioned before you did an MBA and obviously that's quite a a formal uh, version of upskilling, but... Is there any sort of training or other upskilling you need to make yourself ready for this role? Uh, yep, definitely. Um, so a couple of years back, I think maybe 2016 or 2017, I did a formal, um, I'm pretty sure it was just called a CEO mentorship program. Um, and it ran for 12 months and it involved, you had to apply and, and kind of get into it. You ha- it involved a number of workshops, a number of like learning sessions and then the alignment with an existing CEO in a particular area that you would work with in a number of kind of structured sessions throughout the year. So for me, I think it was really valuable in lots of ways and certainly a lot of learnings and and even just, you you know, a lot of the workshops were with experienced CEOs from, from all different industries and just hearing them talk about and that's where I learned, that's where they said, you know, it's a 24-7 gig. Um, but just hearing them talk about the challenges that they face, what, it, you know, what it entails, um, how they navigate those, um, all sorts of things. So, it definitely helped me probably understand a bit more about what it entails from a, you know, a, I suppose a day-to-day perspective. It certainly helped me be able to ask questions of others that have been there and done that. And then from a personal, um, from the one-on-one mentorship program um i i found that really interesting i i um i thought the mentor i had actually was great but it was a really formal structured mentor program and probably what i learned from that is that type of structure isn't for me so i i suppose off the back of that i have a number of mentors um and and none of them are in a formal or structured capacity but i do have a group around me that i that I um, reach out to as and when I need, and they might be specialists in different areas. So that's a re- that's been a really important thing for um, 
for me personally in this role. And I think that's, I mean, that's something that I'll just continue to do. So I think that that formal training was great. And then it's kind of helped me then evolved into recognizing what sort of mentors I need and, and probably how I work best with them as well. I think the um the idea of finding a mentor is an interesting one because a lot of people would love to have a mentor. They're just not sure how to get a, a mentor. How, how did your mentors come about? You, it sounds like it was a pretty natural evolution. Yeah, honestly, like it, you just got to ask. Most people are happy to help. I've literally reached out to another one yesterday and said, hey, um, you know, wanting to see if you'd be happy to, you know, catch up for a coffee with me every couple of months and I'd love to pick your brain on all sorts of things. And it's somebody that is, you know, quite high up and she just said, sure, I'd love to. Um, I, I genuinely find so, and some of them are just from within my networks, old CEOs that I've worked with who I've, you know, have a lot of admiration for people that I've engaged with in my personal life who might be very astute business people that I can reach out to, um, often within our own net personal networks, that there's just great people out there. And I think most people are happy to help. Um, you know, I've had a couple of young people reach out to me and, and do the same thing and I'm more than happy to help. I, you know, I think it's nice to be asked and if there's anything that you can share with people, I think genuinely most people are kind of happy to pass on that information. And, you know, certainly for me, I think it's very important. My my mentors are both men and women, but I have a particular slant towards women because, like I said, I'm really passionate about female leaders and, and probably trying to continue to improve the the gap in the, the, the space that we have in terms of male and female CEOs and high-level executives and those types of things. Well, you are doing a fantastic job representing females at that CEO level. Unfortunately, however, the balance, as you mentioned, is not an even split. So, what do you think can be done to increase the number of female CEOs, particularly within the sports industry? Yeah, it's a good question. And look, the, the the imbalance is definitely there. I think at the moment of the 37 major national sporting organizations, I think there are 28 male CEOs and five female CEOs and a handful that are, that are you know, not filled at the moment. So wow. um, the balance is big. And um, it's quite stark when you put into numbers, like, I think people are aware of the imbalance, but not many people would know those numbers. Yeah, and I agree. And I think when you do hear those sorts of statistics and data, it is pretty eye-opening. And I think as a female, it's pretty disheartening. And then, you know, you have, um, you know, so what can be done about it? You know, I think there's a lot that can be done and I think there's real positive change happening, but I still think we're probably a few generations away from it being probably where it should be. Um, But I think for some change to happen, there's a couple of things. There, there firstly needs to be policy change in organisations, however that may look. So that could be quotas on boards and, and at executive level, and, and I don't particularly like that approach, but I know it is an approach that works. Um, it could be ensuring there's gender balance when you interview for a role. So if you're interviewing for people, making sure that there's two men and two women being interviewed for that role, or even having just gender gender balance on on the agenda at board level for organisations. So it's top of mind. I think so those kinds of policy changes, I think, will start to make a difference. I think organisations need to have conditions and culture and practical support that enable women to thrive. So, for example, flexibility around you know, kind of family environments and, and, and other things that women have to, and men too, of course, but um, um, that women have to work with. Um, and, I, you know, I think finally I think that there just needs to be more support for women in these roles and I mean 
support for women in the organisation. So from board level, from committee level, the people in it, the people in and around it, they need to provide support for women. And I think that is severely lacking in many sports across the country and and that's probably the biggest thing that needs to change. Um, I think I feel very lucky at the Boomers. I have a, I have incredible support from the board and the committees and the people around it. I, I am provided with flexibility. I have two young children um, to be able to manage those. I suppose, again, though, that's balanced with, you know, the, the job is a pretty full-on job, but um, I am supported to be able to thrive in the role that I have. Um, but I would say that I am one of the very few that have that support to be able to do that. So more women in more high level roles will create that change. More men being aware of the issues that are around will create that change. And hopefully, um, you know, there's more of that sooner rather than later. Christy, are you aware of any organisations around the world that are, are leading in that space of support for women at an exec level? Um, the short answer to that is no. I'm sure <laughs> if I did some research, I could probably find some. Look, I think in um, I think in Australia there is a Champions of Change Sports Group, where a range of national sporting organisations are part of, and they there's a range of criteria that they're all working towards to improve the the gender equality in those sporting organisations. So there's definitely um, there's definitely things that are happening for it, but you know they're just things on pieces of paper with ticks or crosses next to them. So I don't know if the outcomes are visible enough perhaps yet or, you know, are being achieved as much as they want them to just yet. Yeah, awesome. I think for anybody who wants to learn more about that space, we recently talked to Sarah Stiles, who's the uh, Director of the Office for Women in Sport in in Victoria, who previously headed up uh, female cricket at Cricket Australia. And she's doing incredible work to make sure that that sort of change is, is coming across, particularly in Australia. So if anyone wants to dive into that episode 93 and 95, and in an epic two-part episode is where you can learn more about that. Awesome. I will definitely go back and listen to that. Christy, finally, if you were a second-year student who had just cruised through year one without adding too much to their resume um, and, you know, you weren't doing too much, and you could send one email to one person or organisation to create an opportunity for yourself, who would that be and what would it say? <sighs> That's a very specific question. <laughs> and about I would 10 say, minutes to think up. Right. And I would say most people who have done, done one year of uni are probably fall in that category, like, let's yeah. be honest. You kind of, you kind of cruise yep. through your first maybe even your first few years until you think, shit, I've got to actually find a job after this, so <laughs> yeah, I better put my finger out. put my hand up and probably say first two years I was nowhere near this. Just kind uh, of, I'd, yeah. I dropped out out of one degree and then got a year and a half through the second one, then that's when it clicked. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, look, I'm with you guys. I reckon for, like uni was a great couple of years, very sociable. So, um, um, but look, I would say um, my suggestion would be that it is super important to put yourself in front of the people that you want to be in front of. Um, so don't waste your time sending an email to Cricket Victoria if you love basketball. If you love basketball and you love the Melbourne Boomers, send me an email. Um, <laughs> send an email. I would say send an email to the person whose job you want one day and tell them that, but tell them in a nice way, of course. Um <laughs> And ask them if they can give you any advice to help you get there. And you know what? You may get 
nothing. You may get no response. You may get a great response um, with some tidbits. And even if you get no response, um, maybe when your name pops up again in front of them, they'll remember that you sent them an email one day and asked them that question. But I think, you know, to get yourself where you want to be, you've got to put yourself out there. And I also think it's important to put yourself out there in the space that you want to be because it just gives you more chance of getting there, really. I love that. Go straight for your number one goal. Yeah. Don't waste time going around the fringes, what you think you might be able to get. Yeah. Go straight and, for and your ultimate dream Tell job. them that you're coming for their job. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. I, honestly, I'll tell you a story. I did a, a, a talk at the Knox City Council Young Sporting Leaders event um, two years ago and a 17-year-old girl came up to me at the end and introduced herself and she said, I want your job. Tell me what I have to do to get it. And I was like, I actually was like, Awesome. Let's uh, and we've been working together in kind of an unofficial mentor mentee capacity since that time. She's volunteered with us. She's done an internship with us. So, like you, you don't know. You just might get something out of it. Fantastic. Well, for anybody who would like Christy's job, feel free to hit her up on on, link, on LinkedIn. If you'd like Ryan's job, hit Ryan up on LinkedIn. Um, I'm not sure if my job's available, um, but um, but that oh, that's great advice. Go straight to who you want. Um, Christy, that's all we've got time for tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. We're taking away plenty from this. You know, I'm going out with the the one to many approach and trying to think of how I'm managing stakeholders and and what you know, we need to do as well just to be effective leaders in some of the examples you've shared of what you should be doing to get to that level and what, what can be expected, but also what fulfillment comes from that type of CEO level role as well is fantastic to get your insight about. So thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolute pleasure. Hopefully it was helpful. Well, there we have it. Christy Collier-Hill, General Manager of the Deakin Melbourne Boomers. Ryan, what did you take away from that conversation? Well, Rubes, I think it's almost like the the best question was the last one. And the thing that I'm taking away from that, if I, you know, am someone out there who is at uni possibly uh, coming through quite easily, not doing everything they could be doing, but they're starting to think about where they want to get to in their career. Um, is to find whatever that dream job might be or it might not be a dream job. It might just be a job that you'd be interested in and message that person, email that person, LinkedIn them, whatever you need to do uh, and just ask for some advice. Ask what they did to get to where they are now. It's a really easy thing to do. Email takes five minutes but you never know where that might come from. Like Christy said, you might get a response, you might not. They might just remember your name and then something might come up and they'll remember you. It doesn't really matter, but do that. It's a simple set. Something's just come to mind as well. So, if you're sending an email out to this person and they're going to give you advice on what to do next, one little thing you could do is apply it to that person because my guess is they're going to give you advice to take somewhere else or to apply in any situation and it's going to involve people. Other people will be involved in that. If you spin that on them and be like, okay, well, I'm going to take your advice. Uh, what can I do to help you? Say so they say, find a problem in an organization that you can solve and be the person to fill it and that's how you create a job. And then you turn around and say, okay, what's your biggest problem? How can I help you? Yeah, You might just create a, a role for yourself off the back of that. So, you know, be prepared to follow up that email. Yeah. Can I just add one thing to that? And it's something that's sure. just come to my mind. When I was finishing my postgrad uni at RMIT, I did a bit of marketing as my postgrad grad certificate. 
And I was thinking about what was next. And I randomly emailed um, a small sort of marketing firm. And I just said, I'm interested in marketing. You know, I still wanted to work in sport, but I wasn't really sure. So I just explored it. Emailed this guy and he actually got me to come to their Melbourne planning session, a team of about seven. I had a day just getting experience. They're planning for the year. And then they took me to an awards night that night for it's like some national marketing awards. And I think about that now and I'm like, I literally just emailed this person and said, I'm interested in working in marketing. Like, are there any opportunities? So, like, that is a classic example of just sending an email, seeing what happens. Like, there's that you've got nothing to lose. And, you know, I I didn't work for them. Like, that's fine. But I still got to sit in that session and get that experience. So, that's just a little example for everyone who thinks, you know, maybe I shouldn't just message some random that I don't know. Like, it can work. So, don't think it's it's a pointless exercise. One of, one of the things I love about doing this podcast, Ryan, is that I think I know everything about you until <laughs> stuff like that comes up. You know, I, I think about that now. I'm like, I don't know how that hasn't really come up at any point. Uh, I, I, I Sometimes I surprise myself, Ruse. I'm like, hmm, oh, yeah, I did do that or that did happen to me. Something. So, Did you, uh, did you uh, win an award that night? No, I, uh, there's actually there's a bit of a story behind it that I'll I'll tell behind closed doors. Maybe we can do a bite size episode on it in a few weeks' time. But uh, yeah. no, it didn't win an award. I think it was runner up. Um, but we're getting okay. ready to go on stage. But anyway, well, <laughs> it's a story for another time. Uh, so yeah, take that as you love want. it. Love it. Awesome. One other thing that I think people listening to to Christy can take away and and put into action is find a way to implement her one-to-many method. Now, for her, she's applying that to how she manages her relationships. If I can do that at the same place at one time, then that's going to save a lot of hours throughout the year. As she said, meeting every single sponsor individually would take her the entire year to do because there's 30 of them, but meeting them on the same night in the same room, inviting them all along to see her, that's more efficient. For a lot of people out there, one idea of how you could apply the one-to-many method could be with your job applications. So, you are selling yourself to these people. When you submit a job application, that is one attempt at selling yourself that goes to one person. One person reads that and you're doing that, you know, over and over again and it's a one-to-one method. If you try and sell yourself on LinkedIn, you put one post out, seen by a thousand people, potentially more. And if you do that over and over again, you're going to be seen by thousands and thousands of people. So, potentially applying the one-to-many method through selling yourself on LinkedIn is one way you can do it. But I think it's a, it's a good approach to, to take into any endeavor. Yeah, nice, mate. And one last one for everyone to take away and that was around, you know, Christy's experience in interviewing for her role and you would have heard her say, you know, she had plenty of questions for them in terms of, you know, what's the role going to be like and, and is this going to fit for her? Because I think at the end of the day, yes, it's an awesome job but you've got to establish, you know, whether this will actually be the role that you want and it's where you want to be heading. So, I think establishing those questions before you go into the interview And also, as usual, and we harp on this a lot, but it's so important, is figuring out why you want the job and what are your values around that. So, make sure that, you know, they might not fit the company that you're going to be working for. So, make sure that you can 
establish what they are before you go in because they're probably going to ask you depending on what level of job you're going for. And to be honest, it's probably pretty consistent across any sort of job you're going for to have those things worked out. And, and if you do have all those things worked out, you're going to be able to talk freely and confidently for that 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it is. Because um, if you don't, you're going to be worried. You're, gonna, you're not really going to be speaking from things you actually know. So establish mm. them early and it gives you the best chance. Well, it also signals what kind of thinker you are. The mm. questions that you ask, you know, show people what goes on in your brain and how you process information. So, yeah. if you want to come across as a creative thinker who's thinking laterally about some of these important issues, that'll come out in the questions you ask. So, I think that's a great thing to be considerate of. Yeah. But uh, that is all from us for today. If you'd like to um, continue the conversation, ask us anything you'd like, you know, maybe ask for, for Ryan's job. Hit us up on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect with us there. Um, other than that, thanks for listening to the Sports Grad Podcast. We'll catch you next time.